This is Recorded Future, Inside Security Intelligence. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 226 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Recorded Future's Insect Group recently published a report titled Dark Covenant, Connections Between the Russian State and Criminal Actors. The report outlines the categories of cyber criminals enjoying privileged status within Russia, along with their often fluid relationships with official Russian authorities. Joining us to discuss the report is a senior threat intelligence analyst from Recorded Futures Insect Group. Due to the sensitive nature of the report and her part in gathering information in it, we are respecting her request to remain anonymous. Stay with us. I think there was a lot of interest with regards to the activities that we were seeing from ransomware actors, as well as some of the activities that we had seen in the past in relation to Russian advanced persistent threats groups. And so I, the intersectionality of that activity and these overlaps that we were seeing, I think, really prompted the research. Well, let's go through it together here. I mean, there's a there's a lot to unpack at a high level. What are you all covering here? Realistically, this report covers a lot of history and activity that is associated with the symbiosis between these Russian criminal threat groups as well as the Russian intelligence services, Russian law enforcement services, as well as the Russian government. Um, there is an association directly between some of these individuals that we see, but there's also a lot of indirect connections and associations. And we're really exploring how those connections benefit the Russian government. Yeah, the report uh, starts off by outlining you know, three main types of links between Russian intelligence services and, and those Russian criminal underground groups. Can you go through that for us? Can you describe uh, the three categories that you've all put together here? Absolutely. We have direct connections, and those are those cases in which we see individuals who are directly linked to the criminal underground as well as to the Russian state. Uh, one example of this would be Dmitry Dokuchayev, who worked with the Russian Federal Security Services, and he was a major within the Federal Security Services, also known as the FSB. And then we have the indirect connections, and that would be associated with these associations in which the criminal underground activity somehow benefited the state. One good example of this is um, Yevgeny Bogachev. And so he maintained a botnet in which the Russian state potentially was using to gather intelligence. And that was identified through some of these search terms that were seen when that botnet was being observed by threat researchers and then hmm. subsequently taken down. And then we have these um, very unclear, um, not necessarily direct or indirect, but somewhat of a um, unclassified association. And that's that's where we see these ransomware threat groups that are conducting activity that's targeting some something of strategic interest. So that would be like the activity against the colonial pipeline. Hmm. Are there groups within uh, Russia that are uh, simply operating for their own financial gain and, and have really very little to no connection to the government? 
Absolutely. There are threat groups that, um, generally speaking, are mostly criminal. Um, they're working out of their own interest, and the state basically allows them to operate so long as they do not impact any of the Russian state interests or domestic infrastructure. Those groups not necessarily are directly associated with the intelligence services, but the intelligence services can reach out and grab those groups and say, you know, we want you to work on our behalf. So it's really um, interesting to see how some of these groups, depending on their level of sophistication and their level of prominence, can be, you know, assets of the Russian intelligence services at, from time to time. And this is where we'll see things like, uh, you know, the malware looking to see if you have a, a Cyrillic keyboard, something like that, to try to, I don't know, you know, geofence their attacks to make sure they don't inadvertently, uh, you know, hit the home team. Precisely. How fuzzy is the line between these three groups? Are there people who are crossing over? Are there are are folks moonlighting those sorts of things? So it's really interesting. What we see is a real spectrum of activity. So there are some individuals who could be operating initially on their own behalf, and then you know they sort of communicate or, or transit over to the more official connections to the Russian intelligence services. Like going back and touching back on that example of Dmitry Dokuchayev, he was initially, you know, a carter and he was operating on these carding websites and then he became sort of an official major within the FSB. So, I mean, it is very fluid. Those associations can change and we've seen that with some of the individuals that we researched within this report. You know, we, we've recently seen uh, some outreach from President Joe Biden, um, you know, his recent meeting with President Putin and, um, you know, by all reports, uh, requesting crackdowns on these things. Where are we on the diplomatic front? Where do things stand there? That's an excellent question. And right now what we've seen is there was a brief hiatus from some of these groups. For example, Re-Evil is the most uh, prominent example here in which the group went on this two-month break after President Biden spoke with President Putin and, you know, basically had this sort of detente with regards to the targeting of U.S. domestic uh, sites of importance. And so Re-Evil recently reemerged and had an, an interview with Russian state media and a supposed spokesperson from that group, you know, emerged and stated that they were on a on a break in in order to navigate some of these geopolitical complexities. But, you know, since then they've returned and we started to see this activity continue, even though there was that brief hiatus. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that um, you pointed out in the report was uh, you, you quote uh, Ann Neuberger, um, who's the uh, White House Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber, that they're hoping to see uh, a commitment to not targeting specific areas. You know, we, we obviously we had the Colonial Pipeline incident recently and JBS and Kaseya. Is it too soon to be overly optimistic that these actors are going to um, follow through on, on these preliminary uh, promises to, to stay away from those areas? It's a really difficult question to answer because I think, um, you know, the Biden administration was hopeful but also very cautious about this, right? And currently, uh, we have a report in the record which states that there's really no indication that Russia has cracked down on any of these ransomware gangs. 
in um, that site, some of the statements from FBI officials. And so realistically, you know, I think there's a, a very solid understanding that we have to be somewhat cynical about any promises that are made on the Russian side, just because we've already seen, you know, these groups that have been on a brief hiatus coming back. And so I, I think the, um, the old trust but verify approach is going to be, you know, pertinent in this regard as well. Is there a sense that um, you know Putin and, and the Kremlin take these threats from the U.S. seriously? That uh, that we have um, other tools in our in our tool uh, bag to be able to have influence over them? Absolutely, I do feel that. Putin really does take these things quite seriously. In fact, that was one of the findings that we had in our report, that he was basically placed on the defensive when the United States called this activity out. And so that's, I think, what triggered some of this, you know, step back by some of the ransomware gangs. And, and realistically, Russia wants to be seen as a great power. And mm -hmm. having these activities called out really does, you know, place them on a status in which they're not really really seen as legitimate. And so right now what Russia wants to do is is be seen as a as a force that is working towards, you know, legitimacy. And in the past, you know, Russia did have a relationship with the United States in in which we both collaborated on cybercrime. But I think it's difficult for Russia to maintain that relationship because they they do see this benefit in reaching to these cybercrime actors to, you know, use them as a cover for some intelligence operations or to use them for their own benefit. So it's it's really um, a delicate balance there. You know, one of the fascinating things in this report that you and your colleagues from the INSEC group have put out is, uh, I guess what I could describe as a bit of a rogues gallery of some of the actors on the Russian side who are involved in these things. Um, we don't have time to go through all of them, but are there some of them that stand out to you that you can take us through the, the types of things that they're up to and what sets them apart? Absolutely. So um, we discussed Dmitry Dokuchayev just uh, a bit ago, and I think he's one of the key figures here because he really directly made that transition from the cyber criminal environment over to the Russian intelligence services. And because he was identified within United States Department of Justice indictments and so ident like publicly identified as one of these actors that was serving the government, but also engaged with the cyber criminal environment, it, it placed Russia in, again, in that environment in which they were seen as doing something that is illegitimate. And so he was punished and placed in prison for a period of time, but he's since been, you know, released and he's right now somewhere out there. We don't know really mm -hmm. what role he's playing right now, but I mean, I think he's a very key figure within this report and within Russia in general. We also see individuals like Pyotr Levashov, who was arrested and, you know, taken back to prison in the West, and he's a figure that Russia fought for. They did not want him going to the West because they were concerned of what he would say, what kind of secrets he would divulge to Western agents. And so um, whenever the West goes after these individuals with these indirect affiliations with the Russian government, the Russian government is very cagey about that. And I think um, they'll continue to employ individuals like Yevgeny Bogachev, who stays at large and lives in Anapa, Russia, 
for their own benefit. He has been a key figure. His botnet aided, likely aided in Russia collecting information and intelligence from the West. And so he's still one of those figures that looms in, in association with this activity. Yeah, you know, you mentioned Bogachev. He's a fascinating um, from the point of view that several of the folks that you highlight here, they seem to have a, a bit of uh, Uh, I don't know, I guess we could call it swagger to them, where they're, you know, the photos that you see of them, you know, Bogachev, for example, has his his exotic cats and and he's out, uh, you know, in in his yacht. Um, And uh, there's another gentleman who's uh, in front of an exotic sports car, you know, out out in the middle of Red Square. It, it, It strikes me that... Wouldn't it be in Russia's best interest for these folks to be a little quieter in their exploits to try to fly under the radar a bit more? Absolutely. I do feel like it's in the Russian government's best interest for these individuals to apply a greater approach to operational security or OPSEC to their activity. However, the Russian government views these people sort of almost like ideal versions of, you know, like a sports figure. And so they kind of um, admire what they do and they want to give them a little bit of freedom to profit from their activity, to enjoy the profits of their activity, and to, um, I think, part of their, their ability to aid the Russian government allows them a little bit of freedom in which, you know, they can pursue these interests, like having yachts and having exotic cats. So I think it is, again, that delicate balance between having an actor who can perform great feats of you know, Russian nationalistic benefit for you, but also make sh- making sure that those threat actors, those individuals are being a bit discreet about it. So I, I think they do walk a fine line when they become very overt in flaunting their wealth, then that's when we tend to see Russian law enforcement reeling them back in just a bit. Yeah, that's a fascinating point about the, I don't know, that, that point of pride, that point of national pride that can come uh, to have the bragging rights that your nation has people with these capabilities. That's that's an interesting aspect. Yeah, and I think um, realistically, again, it goes to this this aspect of Russia wanting to be a world power. And these individuals give them a lot of not necessarily power, but it gives them a lot of ability to punch above their weight. And so realistically, these individuals operating as they do gives gives Russia a little bit of clout, so to speak. But I mean, there is that balance again. They don't want to be o- too overt about it because then that can backfire, right? And it can make Russia look illegitimate. So it's it's really interesting, that delicate balance between criminality and the delicate balance between serving the state and being, you know, a a wealthy person who flaunts your wealth, but also being someone who needs to work for the Russian government and not, you know, go outside the line, so to speak. Yeah. And it seems like every now and then one of these folks uh, gets a little bit lazy and decides to take a, a vacation somewhere that has an extradition agreement with the United States. And that's where we get our hands on them. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's happened quite a few times. And it really interestingly, some of these individuals' wives help the West build a case against these individuals because, you know, the wives like to be active on social media and they like to present a lot of the 
you know, spoils of their husband's exploits. And so that helps Western governments track and find these individuals. So what are some of of the key take-homes here? I mean, the the big picture for organizations looking to defend themselves in in this this global internet that we all exist in, uh, what are some of the key points? I think the key points are that organizations need to ensure that they have a really robust approach to cybersecurity because these threat groups are very versatile, they're very agile, and they're constantly trying to target organizations. So um, as we saw in Colonial's incident, we have to make sure that there's robust approaches to two-factor authentication being applied to systems, to making sure that passwords are regularly Um, replaced and to make sure that servers are always hardened and kept up to date with regards to any patches that are out and making sure that they are ensuring that all of their personnel and all of their infrastructure and all of their organization is taking the most strict approach to cybersecurity possible because these groups are out there and they are ready to target you. Are you optimistic for the future here? I mean, do, do you suppose that uh, this is something that the U.S. And, and our allies are going to be able to have greater influence on to be able to shut these sorts of things down? I am optimistic when I see things like um, the statements from the Biden administration that is naming and shaming this activity. I think that's integral in making some changes to this. I think there also needs to be a lot more partnerships, a lot more agreements, a lot more approaches to hardening the West's approach to security. And I do think that it's going to continue to be challenging in the near term at at, at a minimum, just because even though there has been these hiatuses with these groups, they are going to continue to come back because ultimately Russia maintains this this symbiotic relationship that has not been broken, and it still benefits the state to have that ability to reach into this ecosystem of individuals who can operate in an illicit way on the behalf of the state. And so I think realistically, what we're looking at is there will continue to be these kinds of either ransomware that, uh, you know, malware that appears to be ransomware actors that are in the e-crime space targeting entities that are of significance to the West um, in terms of, you know, any kind of critical infrastructure and also having these threat actors benefit the state in the near term so that advanced persistent threat groups can kind of mask their activity or attribution can be complicated. So we are looking at a brave new world of malware activity, of ransomware activity, of um, quasi-nation-state-backed activity. And I, I fear that, you know, in the near term, we have to be more robust in our approach to combating that. Our thanks to that senior threat intelligence analyst from Recorded Futures Insect Group for joining us. The report is titled Dark Covenant, Connections Between the Russian State and Criminal Actors. You can find it on the Recorded Future website. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. 
The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Caitlin Mattingly. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.